Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, it's Ben. So, Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting, then, that we are the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy, Ben White. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where we think it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Ben, we're rocking and rolling. Episode 21 of the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Uh, no, no more fitting subject line to discuss episode 21 than the owners of the number 21 for what feels like, fittingly again, a lifetime, Wood Brothers Racing. Uh, we've talked about the Wood Brothers a lot on this podcast, deservedly so, because of all the success they've had, with, uh, particularly with David Pearson, but with some other drivers as well. Uh, to, to get things going in this one, though, um, there are a couple of notable races in recent memory that were huge for the Wood Brothers. The first one that comes to mind for me, the 2011 Daytona 500. So they've got this 20-year-old kid who just turned 20, Trevor Bain, second career Cup Series start, uh, first as a pseudo full-time driver. You know, he signed this deal uh, to run 2011, run run a partial schedule with the Wood Brothers because they'd cut back because uh, they hadn't had a lot of success and weren't making as much money. And he goes out and he wins the Daytona 500. Um, ben, uh, you know, that was, to me, I, I, I think, honestly, that's probably the biggest upset win in the history of the 500. And I know that's that's kind of a hot take because you got Derek Cope in 1990. That was a shocker. Um, you've got Michael Waltrip in 2001. But... Derek Cope had a great engine in that car, and they were quick all speed weeks. Michael Waltrip, DEI, we were just scratching the surface of the dominance of that team, and we didn't know what they had in store. But this, to me, Ben, this race came out of nowhere because the Wood Brothers had not been that fast for several years. They hadn't won a race in almost a decade, and we'll get to the other race they'd won in a little bit. But, you know, they were... They were an afterthought at best, and they got a guy in this car who's never won an Xfinity race. Then it was a Nationwide Series, and nobody expected anything of them. You know, I mean, they're just kind of there. And he did, to, to Trevor Bain's credit, he found good drafting partners, and the biggest thing you can do at Daytona is uh, is stay out of trouble. There was an absolute ton of wrecks in that race, and he survived all of them, and he wins. Uh, what do you remember about, I mean, obviously I know you're a, you know, Richard Petty fan. So growing up, you saw David Pearson win all the time. Uh, it's like David Pearson was the Kyle Larson of the seventies almost, um, unless Richard Petty was the Kyle Larson of the seventies. But, um, you know, thinking back to this 2011 Daytona 500, that had to be, even in your opinion, one of the craziest finishes in the history of the sport, right? Oh, absolutely. It sure was there. And it was almost one of those days where, you know, you see a kid in the 21, and you have so much respect for the Wood Brothers over the years, and you almost want to say, Trevor, who? Really? Yeah. Because no, nobody really knew who he was, and like you say, he really had no success. Well, I mean, think about it. He only had one other race under his belt uh, in, in the Cup Series, and he goes into the Daytona 500 in the 21 car, and he no one really knew who he was, and so he gets in the race, and like you said, he dodges a lot of these crashes. And at the end of the race, here's this kid 
and everything's falling his way. And, and secretly, you're thinking, this would be the coolest story in the world to write because it's going to be a Cinderella story Sure. If he, if he wins it. And sure enough, down to the white flag, goes around four turns, and suddenly here's this kid keying his radio. He said, can you believe this? Can you believe this? He couldn't even believe it. Here, here he was holding off some of the biggest superstars in the sport, and he comes down under... The checkered flag and he's not only won the biggest race in nascar but he's also done it for one of the greatest race teams ever like you said they were here in the very beginning back yep. when nascar was just a fledgling hope if that's the good way to put it because that's the polite in, way of putting it yeah exactly you know june 19th 1949 a bunch of guys get together and put some rules together and they go to charlotte at not charlotte motor speedway but a, a track over on wilkerson boulevard and yep and a little dirt track and they put together something called NASCAR and that the Wood Brothers were there. And uh, they had uh, 98, that was the 98th victory. And then, uh, you know, Ryan it's possible, Blaney, Ben, that, that at that time, Trevor Bain's grandparents hadn't been born. Actually, <laughs> might, be, uh, might be true. And, you know, they had 98 wins with Trevor's victory. Ryan Blaney wins number 99 at Pocono. They're still looking for 100. But, I mean, they were a big, big force in the 70s and 60s. Sure. You know, David Pearson driving the car. And, and, you know, when I was growing up, we'd go to Darlington every year for the spring race. And, of course, it was David Pearson, David Pearson, David Pearson. And Just like it's Kyle Larson, Kyle Larson, Kyle Larson yeah. right now. And every year he would win that thing. And we'd go from, like, 1972 to about 78 or 9, and, and he won a ton of races there at Darlington. He got to the point where he got a little frustrated because every year it was David Pearson. Well, but that just showed you how great they were as far as Wood Brothers and David teaming up together. The chemistry with, with them was great. But as far as the Wood Brothers family, now, you could absolutely not find a better family. Maybe the Petties. But they've got so much respect among among everybody in the garage, even now with Eddie Wood, Lynn Wood, uh, you know, Leonard Wood. And sadly, we've lost Glenn, uh, who passed away three or four years ago. And lots of, you know, the Wood brothers were literally like lots of brothers. They're changing tires and working on cars back in the Kale Yarborough days. And David Pearson and, and driving for him, of course, like we said, and Buddy Baker drove for him. Neil Bonnet, just yep. a who's who list of Dale drivers. Dale Jarrett got his first Dale win with him in 91. Sure did, and just in a tremendous family. But back to Trevor Bain. I mean, you know, you talk about the most surprised person in the entire state of Florida was probably Trevor Bain because yeah. he was driving the car, and here's this kid who goes, on, like I said, under the checkered flag. He's won this race, and, I mean, the kid was like, can you believe this? He was keying his mic, and anyway, biggest win uh, for, uh, for his career, and uh, he, I don't, he didn't win any other races, but, I mean, uh, that's okay. You can tell that to your grandkids. Hey, sure. maybe I didn't win anymore, but I won the Daytona 500. You can't take a thing away from him. He's a talent, he was a talented race driver. Yeah, and, and, you know, honestly, speaking of Trevor Bain winning this race, there's a couple of, of interesting postscripts to it. First of all, Trevor Bain grew up a Jeff Gordon fan. Uh, at that time, there was, you know, circulating this picture of Trevor Bain meeting Jeff Gordon, if I recall correctly, Ben. And one of his best drafting partners for much of the 500 and, and really a lot of speed weeks. I mean, even through practice sessions and, and the, um, the qualifying races, he worked with Jeff Gordon a whole lot, and he didn't. You know, he wasn't afraid to admit he was kind of starstruck. Well, he makes it to the end of this race, and Gordon didn't. All of the Hendrick cars wrecked at some point. Um, so, you know, it was, a, it was a battle of survival. And I want to go back to not just to the fact Trevor Bain won this race, Ben, but this gives us an opportunity to go back in time a little bit, strap on the time machine helmets, and say that Daytona in 2011, they just paved the racetrack again for the first time in decades. And... The style of restrictor plate racing was unlike anything any recent NASCAR fan has seen. It wasn't like anything any of us had ever seen, where you had to have a partner. You just push them nose to tail as long as you can, try to get your engine not to overheat, time these pushes just right. They called it the two-car uh, the tandem drafting was what it was called. Mm -hmm. Wasn't around that long um, because a lot of the drivers absolutely hated it. But Trevor Bain figured out how to do it, and I'm not even sure if he really knew what he was doing. He said since then he, he really didn't know what he was doing, which <laughs> makes it more impressive that he won the race. Um, mm -hmm. 
but that it it really you know that that race to me Ben is just like there's so many aspects of that race that are just kind of stuck in 2011 like tandem drafting did not last very long Trevor Baines Cup Series career unfortunately did not last very long um, there, there's just you know and and there's other postscripts to it like David Reagan was leading on a late restart. And I think he either jumped the restart or he switched lanes too quickly, and so they penalized him. David mm-hmm. Reagan could have won the 500 for Roush, and then imagine how that would have changed his career, because yeah. uh, he ended yeah. up getting his first win. He actually been now that I think about it, he would have swept Daytona that year because he won in July, um, yeah. but he uh, you know that would have changed David Reagan's career and the trajectory of that you know immensely because then you know. He doesn't. He probably doesn't lose his ride with Roush if he wins. If he wins two Daytona races like he did, which opened the door for him to you know move Ricky Stenhouse Jr. at a cup a couple years later, could have changed a lot of things. But you know what we know is that Trevor Bain won the race. We know it was win number ninety eight for the Wood Brothers, like you said, Ben. We know it was immensely popular. Um, you know, I include myself in this. A lot of us started comparing him to Jeff Gordon. It was you know this guy came out of nowhere. He won this race. He's clearly going to be an absolute superstar in a sport and a force forever. And I'm thinking like, all right, well, there you go. There's the next driver, the number 24 for Hendrick Motorsports, Trevor Bain. And we were so, we were yeah. way, way off base. And it's also interesting to, to, to note that uh, around that time, the next driver, the number 24, did sign with Hendrick Motorsports. And it was Chase Elliott. He signed his development contract with Hendrick, I think in early 2011. Yeah. So we, we, we didn't, you know, at least... I speak for myself here. I thought Trevor Bain was going to, that, that was, that was a springboard for him. That wasn't the Zenith that it wound up being. Um, but it was a crazy race. And Ben, I, I wasn't in the, the, the press box, but stories have been told. Stories have been written about how media members were cheering in the press box. I think one guy lost his job for it. Um, yeah, if I, I think correctly. So. Yeah. And so, you know, I've never seen that. I've covered a lot of races. Um, I've never really seen people cheer in the press box. There's been a couple cases where I've seen somebody root for one person over another. And, you know, it typically it's old time reporters and they probably are friends with one of those drivers. And, you know, so I get it. They don't well. stand up and cheer. You shouldn't do it anyway. It's a taboo thing to do. But apparently there were some people just standing up, hooting and hollering and just yelling like they were sitting in the grandstands for Trevor Bain to win this race. And, <laughs> That you know, as yeah. cool a story as it was, and as great a story as it was for the sport, you got the sport's most popular driver, Dale Earnhardt Jr., wins the pole, and then this unknown kid, Trevor Bain, wins the race. It was a great February for NASCAR, but you know, I don't know, Ben, cheering in the press box crosses the line to me. Yeah, it does cross the line, but you know what? I, I agree with you. I think standing up and cheering and standing on the desk that you're working on. And, you know, being a fan, okay, you're, you're privileged to be in that setting because you, you have a responsibility to be neutral, and I understand that. But we all, to a degree, we all are, we're all race fans. If you weren't, yeah, absolutely. you wouldn't be there. So, yeah, it's okay to smile, and it's okay to be, because here's the thing. If you, this is just my opinion, Okay. but if you, um, okay, let's, I mean, you don't want to go somewhere and you just want to, you don't want to sit there and write about paint drying or grass growing, right? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> so you don't Not want to do that. Yeah. You, you're, you're human and you want to see the Cinderella story happen. Sure. I've always been a friend, a fan of, of the Cinderella story as it comes down. And, um, you always want to see that guy who worked the hardest and he passed the superstar on the last lap and he wins the race and might be his only win, but you know, it was really, I like, you know, like Trevor wins the race, the biggest race in, in NASCAR history and all yeah. that jazz. Carl Edwards okay. being the superstar in this case, who he beat yeah. on. But yeah, I mean, right. it's... I mean, you, you have, you have, you have human emotion and now you got to keep a restrictor plate on your head, so to speak, when you, when you're writing this kind of stuff. But I mean, seriously, you should. You should. And, but let's take this example of 1998 when Jeff Gordon won 13 races that year. When you got to race number 9, 10, 11, you're thinking, what the heck am I going to write about now? Because you covered every lead and every great sentence, lead sentence and all that. So, yeah, it's nice to see a new guy win. It's nice to see that come across. But That's a know, great comparison, Ben. I got to stop you there because you made me – I had to stop for my laughter because you just described – 
1998, Jeff Gordon, you just described 2021 Kyle Larson to a T. Yeah. Imagine absolutely. like having to write, you know, I'm glad I don't have to cover the races every week because, yeah. hey, Kyle Larson won at, um, you know, he, he won the pole for the 600. And then he won the 600. And then he's yeah. on the pole at Sonoma. And then he went and he to Sonoma. Sonoma. And he's yeah. on the pole for the All-Star Race. And he, and wins, he wins the All-Star, All-Star. Race. And he's yeah. on the pole at Nashville. And he wins at Nashville. So, right. like, you know, kudos to whoever can come up with really good lead paragraphs and, and news stories, uh, particularly in this day and age of limited access. Uh, we're just starting to get back to some some regular access for the media and NASCAR now. Um Hopefully the NFL right. will will follow suit. They're moving at a slower pace in that regard, as I see. But um, yeah, you know, there have been races where I was rooting for the guy who won to win, and I was really excited. Um, and there have been different reasons for that. You know, it might be that that person was my favorite driver, and he had never won at that track before, um, and I had never covered a race at that track before, and all those perfect things came together on one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one sunny October day in 2014, yeah. but, yeah. um, yeah, but, but you don't share that emotion, you know, like you, right. you, you, you keep that in like, yeah, was I jumping out of my skin, standing in the garage area with two laps to go when said driver passed another champion and held off another champion and one of his rivals to win? Sure. But I mean, like when you talk to him after the race, it's, you know, Hey, congrats, man. So what does this mean to you? You know, sure, um, sure. you don't, I don't want to look like a fool or or feel like I'm looking like a fool or, or just kind of give off that vibe of not being impartial. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, a year later, that driver's rival wins that same race. And I'm just as excited because it's such an awesome storyline. Right. Um, and, 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 and so and, you have those moments, you know, and you have too, I'm sure, Ben, where, you know, yeah, you're super excited for the guy who wins, whether it's, you know, upset like Trevor Bain, it's Dale Jr. winning at Martinsville, it's Jeff Gordon winning at Martinsville. Um, it, you know, it's uh, Jimmy Johnson winning his last 600, whatever it may be, uh, where you're excited to see the guy win for, for various reasons. Um, but you just, I guess the, the short end of it is you just, you don't advertise it, right? Right. And here's a good example of what I'm talking about. 1984, Jeff Bodine won the race uh, April, actually April 29th, 1984. And he won Gaylord the race. Taylor Hart's 33rd Mar- birthday. Yeah. And he won the race at Martinsville. It was the first victory for Hendrick Motorsports. And of course, now it's, what, 273 or something. I lost count. I'll just, I'll just round up to 300. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> soon, <laughs> Larson will get them there soon enough. Be. Yeah, it soon will be. But, okay, you know, I was I was happy to be there. I covered the race. That was actually the day I worked with MRN. I was telling you about a few podcasts back, yeah. but I still had some responsibilities you know, to cover the race for the Lexington, North Carolina dispatch. Okay, great. All well and good. All right. Well, what? Uh, Two days ago, I got on the telephone and I talked with Jeff about a QA and a I was doing for Pole Position magazine. And we took some time after the interview was over and we reminisced about that day and how much it meant to to me to be there. And we just talked about it. Okay, that's an appropriate situation because he retired in 2011. Right. And, and you know, it's two old friends talking about how cool it was and how neat it was to see him win his first race. And Right, but you didn't stand up in whatever makeshift press box they had then no. and, and start yelling, come on, Jeff, bring it home, baby. You know, no, like no, that's no. – right. I don't right. even – I did I don't even do that at races as a fan. (laughs) No, no. And see, that's what I'm talking about. There's a a time and a place for everything. And when, when Trevor won that race, yeah, I'm in the press box and I'm, and I'm happy for him so and I'm that. happy for the Wood Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and I'm smiling to myself and thinking, what a great day. And someday, like what I did with Jeff Bourdine, you know, I'm going to be able to sit down with him with a Coke or Pepsi or something and say, you know, I was there that day. It was really a lot of fun to see you win that race. Right. And, you know, the memories, and this is one of my regrets. And I I was telling my wife Eva the other day about this. I wish I had just jotted some of this stuff down in a composition book or something just for my own memories. And I still remember a lot of it. But when you when you go back and, and you try to remember, I'm I, I think I've got a pretty good memory about you some do. of this stuff. I know exactly what you mean though, because there's there's those little tidbits of the story that you forget. And yeah. I'll tell you, Ben, the advantage I've had, I haven't done that. I I I, I should and should have, but I didn't. But 
I had the advantage of uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, mm-hmm. and where I document that and I write, I, I might mention it in a tweet or something, and then I might forget about it later, and then I remember that part of the story. Like Dale Jr. Yeah. wins at Martinsville and they gave him two hot dogs after the race, and Kerry Tharp Jr. forgets them in in, uh, in the winter in the media center, so Kerry Tharp gives them to me. Um, so I actually had his winner's hot dogs um, <laughs> yeah. when he won at Martinsville. I mean, so, but I would have remembered that, to your point, Ben. I wouldn't have remembered that if I didn't yeah. tweet about it. Right. I mean, there's just times that I wish I had jot, I would jot some things down yeah. just for me, not not to stand up someday, hey, man, look at what I did. No, it wasn't that. It's when I want to sit out there in the lunchroom where yeah. all the sheet metal is and just say, you know what, I totally forgot about that. and and Or... Or I'll go back and look at what I call the blue books, which is uh, Greg Fielden's series of yeah. stock car books, the yep. 40 years. We of got stock those car. in the office. Yeah, and I look back on those things like, crap, I was totally wrong about that. I didn't realize, you know, I thought he was two laps down or he was 10 laps down, and I thought he finished fifth and he really finished 12, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And and as you go, you, you just think that's the way it came down, and it didn't come down that way at all. You, you get foggy on some of it, and I just wish I had just written down some things just for me, you know, and, and 99% of the time, I'm, I have to say I'm pretty close, but there is that little bit of time, not 95, say 90% of the time, and I'm pretty close. But I would have said 95, times, but I mean. <laughs> I'm just not totally, I make mistakes. We yeah. all make mistakes. I mean, yeah, Absolutely. You know, so anyway, it's just, but I'm, I'm looking forward to the days when, I, I mean, I'm still, I think about stuff all the time in the past and, and they're great memories and the little things like this. Okay. I, I'm sorry. I'm going off here a little bit. That's but what we, we do. Yeah. But, and, and I, I love talking about it's the little tidbit things that mean nothing, but it means a lot to me. Sure. Like when Dale Earnhardt got out of his car in Japan after the race at uh, Suzuka. Uh, Suzuka and Motigi, I guess, was the oval. Yeah. And he, he gets out of the car and he, he cut, walks straight over to me and says, Junior stole my tires. Do you believe that? Junior stole my tires on the last piece. <laughs> it's like it means nothing to anybody else, but he comes straight over to me and put his arm on my shoulder and said, Junior stole my tires. Well, I guess I it's stole like, Junior's hot dog, so <laughs> it's <laughs> like, the scripture story. And see, I have nowhere to put that. I have nowhere to write that. Yeah, see, but, but you could have like, tweeted that, man. That's why uh, if, if yeah. Twitter existed back in the day, Ben – you know, yeah. I don't. You're not on it now, but man, if you were, if they had it in the '90s, though, I think that's where some of those things could have yeah. lived. That that's your I, that's your you living, know, uh, your diary, kind of. Yeah, and I, I'll never forget. He was he had a little that little smirk on his face, yeah. but he was he was you know 50 percent happy or you know 50 percent. He was a little pissed because Junior beat him. Yeah, and he's like, he had he not taken my tires, I would have beat him. But but Earnhardt never settled for second. You sure. know, he, even he, against he goes, his son. Right, he used to call it the first loser, of course. And yeah. but anyway, he, why would he tell me that? I don't know why he told me that, but he just come walk straight over to me and said, "Junior stole my tires," or "Junebug," I think's what he said. "Junebug stole my tires." I believe that. Well, I mean, you know, anyway. at that in that setting, Ben, you know, Dale probably just enjoyed seeing a non-Richard Childress racing familiar <laughs> face. In all yeah, honesty, that's, that's true. Cause, that's that's yeah. probably part of it. And, um, and, you know, he did say this to me, too, when we were having I was telling you a few episodes back about how he was relaxed and happy. Not that he didn't enjoy his fans because he did. Yeah. But he said, no one over here knows me and I can relax. I mean, I really I've got time to sit and talk and sign autographs and hang out with you. So let's go hang out. It's like, really? Me? You want to hang out with me? Are you serious? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, let's go hang out. I don't know anybody else over here. So, heck yeah, let's go hang out. So we did. Yeah, I but think I mean, we discussed this in like episode two. And, and looking yeah. back on it, still, every time we discuss it, it makes me wonder if he would if he tried sushi when he was over there. Um, uh, I would love to know. And I would I would definitely say no. <laughs> well, you know, the, the next time I see Richard Childress, I'm going to ask R.C. I don't sure. know R.C. as well as you, so I think it, it makes it even better that it comes from me. Because um, yeah. I've only talked to him a few times ever, but um, so I, you know that, and, and there are those great moments, and and that's one of the things that I was going to touch on today. So you actually you beat me to the punch, Ben. Is that uh, you know, if Twitter and social media existed twenty thirty years before it became super popular, how it would have changed NASCAR? 
Um, imagine, you know, Dale Earnhardt trending in February of 98 for finally getting that monkey off his back and winning the Daytona 500. Or imagine, I'll tell you something. You know who would have hated to have Twitter in the 90s because you know he just would have made a fool of himself at some point? And I say this not derisively. I say this in a fun way because I loved watching this guy race. But as soon as I tell you his name, Ben, you're going to completely agree with me that of all the cup drivers in the 1990s, this guy would have regretted having Twitter more than anybody else. Let me see if I can guess who you're going right, to say. take a shot. I was going to say Harrigan. Nope. Jimmy Spencer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Excitement yeah. at Mr. Yeah. Excitement in the mid '90s, because you know Jimmy Spencer never pulled punches about anything. Yeah. He uh, he would have been he's somebody who would have gotten in hot water with NASCAR because he would have tweeted at Bill France Jr. And it's just funny to think about these ideas, but like he would have tweeted at Bill France Jr. about how the Chevys are you know so much better than the Fords and they're getting screwed. Um, and there's two other people that would have been must follows in the '90s on Twitter. Rusty Wallace and, um, and you know, Rusty's on there now, but, mm. you know, Prime Rusty, which we, we've devoted half a podcast to about Rusty's, you know, had to cuss every time he got interviewed. I just mm. ate that up as a kid. So you got Rusty. He would have been a must follow. And then another one is, I think, Felix Sabatis, 1990s Felix Sabatis. Man, that guy would have, I mean, he would have populated your Twitter feed. Like, you remember, okay, you remember when he uh, protested, you know, they, this was uh, 95. Dover, uh, Felix Sabatis was so pissed off that he thought NASCAR was favoring Dale Earnhardt that he mm-hmm. pulled the absolute king troll move all time, coolest thing. He paints Kyle Petty's car like Dale Earnhardt's for the next race because they yeah. he's like, oh, you well, if you're just gonna favor Dale Earnhardt, then I'll paint my car like his and maybe yeah. you'll treat us like him. And I'm pretty sure they qualified beside each other that race. I too. think they did. Yeah. I totally, for, I've totally forgot about that, but yeah. I, I do remember that now. And do you remember the time Rusty got fined by NASCAR for something? I don't remember what, what it was, but he paid him in pennies. Do you remember that? Yeah, and um, I think I Felix Sabatis did that too. Yeah. I think, I, think Felix, he, I, I remember Felix doing it, and it might have been for this, whatever this transgression it was. It could have been. That, I don't you know, remember how much, and I don't yeah. remember what it was for, but they, they paid him in pennies. And it was like $10,000 fine or something, but he paid him in pennies. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, Felix Sabatis yeah. is an absolute showman, and it, behind the wheel, so was Rusty. And here's another one for you while we're on this subject, Ben. Oh, my gosh. All right. Imagine this. Mid-1980s, early 80s, Twitter, Daryl Waltrip. <laughs> must see must see all the time i mean that's a that's a guy that i don't i don't subscribe to like anybody's tweets so i don't get like notifications i hate getting notifications on my phone if you actually go through my phone and read that what like the, the general settings on my iphone i've got notifications turned off on all but like two apps i just hate getting notifications it annoys yeah. me if i if i want something i look for it um but Daryl Waltrip, man, I would have subscribed to his tweets in the 80s because you know that. I mean, think how good he was in the press conferences. Think how good he was oh, talking yeah. to the media. God, I mean, could you imagine if he had that at his disposal? I mean, he would yeah. have raised hell all the time. Yes, he he was a showman and very, very creative about his comments when he was he was first when it came to having the right thing to say at the right time. And I'm telling you something, when he won those three championships in 81, 82, and 85, he was the world's best about getting into people's heads. Yeah. And he 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 really was great on the racetrack, don't get me wrong. Sure. But he did just as much uh, in, in the other drivers' heads than he did on the racetrack because he could get them to thinking too much about, this next race or this racetrack or what he proposed to do on the racetrack come Sunday and then just get them all flustered. And, and he would, he was the man when it came to that, he could really make you think, yeah. outthink yourself. And yeah, he was, you know what made that more dangerous? The crew chief who would play the best mind games was his crew chief, Jeff Hammond. Yeah. The car owner who played the best mind games was his car owner, junior Johnson. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They, they made a great combination yep. as far as as far as mind games. Yeah. But Daryl was the absolute best at it. And he he just knew what to say at the right time. He'd get in front of a camera and he oh my gosh, he would he would just self make the other people self destruct. 
And that was as much the MO for Daryl as it was shifting gears and moving high and low on a racetrack. He was he was the best at it. Yeah, and Daryl is one of few drivers in NASCAR who, I mean, I say this with the utmost honesty, having talked to Daryl multiple times as a journalist, you know, not nearly as many as you have been, but I know you agree with me on this point. Um, few drivers in the Cup Series, especially when it gets to the Cup Series now, like to deal with the media. Doesn't mean they don't enjoy talking to some people. They have friends in the media, you know. It, it, that doesn't mean that, but they don't like the idea of doing a press conference is a chore. And I understand that because, as Tony Stewart said, if it doesn't make my race car faster, I don't really care. So right. a lot of guys have that that dedication, and a side effect of that dedication is they don't want to deal with the media. Um, Bill Elliott hated dealing with the media. A lot of guys, you know, I don't. I've begun to think Kyle Busch might not like dealing with the media. Um, that sounds of course, laden with sarcasm. But there are two guys who I think love it, and like when they hear, hey, you're up for a press conference, they're like, yes. There's two mm-hmm. that come to mind, Daryl Waltrip and Brad Keselowski. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. But the difference in Daryl and, and Brad, I think, is Daryl loved to, and I say this lovingly, I really do because I love yeah. Daryl. He'd love to antagonize the media in a way you know, because I mean, he had a message. How did he? How there. did he do that? I'm curious because you well, you may have seen you saw a side of Daryl because I've only encountered Daryl as a journalist, as an announcer. You saw Daryl in his prime as a driver. Well, when I say love, and I say that with respect, sure. lovingly of yeah. Daryl, because well, I'm both Daryl fans here. So yeah, well, I mean, it's, no, I mean, I just love. He's a friend. He's a friend of mine, and yeah. I and I love talking to him because he's got a million stories. When I say that, I think because he. He had a way of of whatever he was telling, he could tell it very in a very interesting sort of way and still come across and get that message out to the guy he was racing for the championship or for yeah. or for the win on the next the next race. And and just he would he would get the point across, but he would also get the point across to the guy he was trying to get the point across to, if that makes any sense. Yeah, he was just well, he was mentally tough, and and, and that yeah. that set Daryl apart from most other drivers. And honestly, if I had to take somebody from the '80s who whose prime was in the '70s, '80s, who could have translated that approach to Formula One best, where your biggest rival is your teammate and yeah. everything is mind games. I think a lot of NASCAR guys would have a bit of trouble in, in that for various reasons, but I think Daryl Walter would have absolutely thrived in it because he loved nothing more than needling somebody, just getting under skin a little bit, but using the media as a perfect tool to, as you said, get his point across and uh-huh. get in people's heads. And if you're in their head, you've already you're half you've halfway won the race. That right, was the way exactly. Daryl's approach was, and he made it work perfectly. Right, and and there's another step to that. You know, Daryl Waltrip and Neil Bonnet would drive, you know, in the mid eighties for Junior Johnson. Okay, but they were and the way they were had it laid out at Ingle Hollow, North Carolina, right there in North Wilkesboro, where the shop was, they weren't in the same building. So so the cool part for Junior was he would go in the eleven shop and he'd talk to the crew chief and Daryl and all the guys and he'd say you wouldn't believe what those guys over in the 12 shop are saying about y'all. And he's like, what do you mean? So, oh, I, you just wouldn't believe it. I mean, they, they're saying, y'all, you just don't have what it takes to get this next race at North Wilkesboro or Bristol or whatever. Say North Wilkesboro. Yeah. Y'all just really got to get your act together. I mean, seriously, y'all, you're way behind. They're going to beat your butt. <laughs> and he okay? was also harder on the 11 team because I think right. he, they were, If you, and I say this, this is no disrespect to Neil Bonnet, who we've said in this podcast a lot, it's an absolute legend, but the 11 yeah. team was the A team and the 12 team was the A1 or B team. Right. Okay. But here, you're, I agree with you. But okay, yeah. okay. So what he would do is Junior would leave and he'd cross the creek and he'd go over there to the 12 team and he'd say, you would not believe what the 11 team is saying about y'all i believe <laughs> and that he, though. <laughs> and, and he would get in their heads yeah and say, oh yeah they think y'all are just full of crap and y'all have no shot at winning at wilkesboro this weekend and just he would pit them again now this is both of his teams right yeah. but he would pit <laughs> but them he's the first real he, multi-team multi-car team owner since carl kike for two so like yeah he he's blazing this trail in the worst way possible because yeah, he's but, pissing his two teams off and pitting them against each other yeah. but they made it work but they did make it work and yeah. that's partly why they made it work is because he would just 
you know, they'd snarl at each other on pit road. And, you know, there was no, not like today where they'd have, you know, the crew chiefs and the drivers and all that in the big room around the big oak table. They yeah. weren't doing that back in those days. They were sort of, you know, fighting kind of. It was like F1. Your biggest rival was your teammate. It kind of was. Yeah. And they were they were just kind of pitting. He, he, Junior knew exactly what he's doing. He's playing mind games in his own race team. Yep. And, and so that kind of stuff was going on then and not like today where everything's a team, team, team effort. Yeah. And a lot of drivers back in that era, even before the the 80s, even in the 70s, it was taboo if you were a single car team and the team owner walked in and said, hey, guys, we're going to have a second race car. And they're like, what? We don't want our second car because they would always think they were getting better equipment and then than the other than the one car. Right. And so the drivers hated it when another when the car owner came in and said we're going to have a second race team. Just like they because, said in Days of Thunder, it's one to me roosters in hen house. Exactly, that's the way they and they hated having a second car because there was always that little bit of doubt: Are you getting better engines? Are you getting better chassis? Are you getting better whatever? And they just hated it. And then a lot of times you'd see those teams, they'd stay together a couple of years, and one of those drivers would cut a trail and go somewhere else. Just like uh, Jeff Bodine and Tim Richmond. Yeah. Darryl Walter. And, yeah. There's a lot of funny stories that come out of those deals. Where, oh, yeah. And see, that's the thing is that, you know, you know really, uh, even into, and this is what's crazy to think about this, Ben. Into the early 90s, there was really only three multi-car teams in NASCAR's recent history. You had, uh, you had Junior Johnson which kept the two-car team until he shut it down. And then um, Hendrick Motorsports became a two-car team in 86 when they added uh, Tim Richmond to the stable with Jeff Bodine. And then a year later, added Daryl Waltrip, the man himself. And then and we've discussed some of the oil and water <laughs> relationships mm-hmm. that they had within that shop. And then um, Roush, and, and we hadn't touched on this one much, but this, one, this one's kind of fallen under the radar. But really the third multi-car team, was Roush Fenway Racing at the time, just Roush Racing. Um, who knows? Maybe there'll be Roush Fenway Keselowski Racing next year. Hint, hint. But um, mm-hmm. they, you know, they had Mark Martin. They're getting getting this team settled with Mark Martin. He's becoming a pretty regular championship contender. And he and Jack starts a second car in a 16 with sponsorship from Keystone Beer and his new driver, Wally Dollenback. And as right. it were, my background on this computer is Wally Dollenback's Keystone Beer car. Because I thought that car was really cool, and I like Wally a lot. Wally's cool, but you know, you covered, you were thick in the sport at this time in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So they put yeah. this team together for ninety two, and and Roush has been a multi car team since ninety two. Um, at one point, it had five cars. Now they're back down to two, so it's more manageable. But ninety one, as they're putting this deal together, because it was announced fairly early, Wally Dollenback, and so at the time in ninety one. To give you guys some background, Ford, as a manufacturer in NASCAR, had three young talents they were really big on. And all three were from non-NASCAR backgrounds. They had Wally Dollenback Jr., who was from a sports car and open-wheel background, Robbie Gordon, who was from a Baja background, and Jeff Gordon, who was Mm -hmm. from open-wheel racing background. And... So Wally had had you know won a couple races in '91 for uh, Virginia Don Levy, and then signed and, and then he's you know put in the Roush team for '92. Ben, do you remember like what sort of discussion? What was the scuttlebutt in the garage here when people were like, "God, there's gonna be three multi-car teams now that Jack Roush is starting one." Like, what's what were the thoughts behind that as, as that was coming together? Well, I can tell you exactly why that happened and, and what the discussion was. And that was that this little kid from originally from Vallejo, California, who goes to Pittsburgh, Indiana, open wheel racing and sprint cars, comes to NASCAR with first Bill Davis and then Hendrick Motorsports, this little kid named Jeff Gordon, sets the world on fire and winning the Brickyard 494 and before that Charlotte a few months earlier. And everybody was looking for their own quote, little Jeff Gordon. And if he came from open wheel and we got to find the next Jeff Gordon and open wheel. And that was Wally and, and anybody that had any kind of open wheel experience. And that's yeah. why everybody was searching for that next new talent. And Rick Hendrick had already buttoned him up and signed him up and 
had you know had the the diamond in the rough and if you remember back in 93 you know jeff was running the full schedule he had the one race the last race of the 92 season in atlanta yep but i mean i don't mean any disrespect to jeff whatsoever because you know jeff's awesome and he was he proved he could win races absolutely 93 races okay and four championships but in 93 he tore up a lot of stuff yeah. because he oh, he's told crying. me he's told me that he sucked that year yeah and he he tore up a lot of sheet metal and uh and but every time he tore up something he learned something and by 94 he was really really developing as a race car driver and he proved it because he won like i say charlotte and in, in the brickyard and i don't remember the other wins he had that year it was but just everybody. Charlotte Brickyard, I think, because he. Okay. But then it was '95 when he started to put up Kyle Larson like numbers. Exactly, and every year he got better and better. But everybody, to, to back to the point, everybody was looking for their little Jeff Gordon to really set the world on fire because obviously, he said, hey, we're looking in the wrong places. Okay, we need to be looking for somebody who can handle a car on dirt, who can handle an open wheel car, who's got that feel, seat of the pants feel. Right obviously he does and he's done so well we gotta look so that's why you saw these multi-car teams come to, to into play and plus another thing that was going on back in that era was that early 90s if you think back nascar was the hot potato as far as motorsports yeah. and the sponsorships weren't so incredibly high yet and because the cost of running was, a team wasn't quite as high no, and right, exactly. And the uh, the you know corporate America was really looking at NASCAR as a great advertising marketing vehicle, and so uh, yeah, that's that that was the reason why you're getting into these multi car teams. As time went on, then you got into a lot of engineering and engineers, and suddenly the cost of racing was getting up into that. And I've heard these rumors, I can't confirm it, but some of these sponsors were getting into the 20 million a year type stuff. And that's the number I've always heard. And then it got astronomically high. And then you started seeing some of these teams back off from four teams to five teams to back to down to two teams. Yep. That's, you know, that's just crazy high. Some of these, you know, sponsorship deals. Well, yeah, and they were just giving them an opportunity to, you know, print money and, you know, and the thing about Roush, and we're talking a lot about Roush here, because, uh, well, first of all, because they're a legendary team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ironically, this being episode 21, Roush is now, or was at one point, affiliated with Wood Brothers Racing. Now Wood Brothers is, uh, is, is in tight with Penske. But, mm-hmm. you know, Roush, they had five cars, and almost, I mean, about all of those five cars were really good. I mean, they, they, it was in a situation where, you know, Hendrick and Childress and Gibbs and really every super team, has had one or two cars that, you know, at, at some point in time, it just weren't performing. You know, you can blame the driver, you can blame the crew, you can blame whoever you want. It's just, it's, it's a fact. And, um, you know, there, there's people have said about that fourth Hendrick car, you know, is the fourth Hendrick car as good as everybody else? Is that, are they getting as good equipment? Whether that was Dale Jr. or Casey Kane or Alex Bowman or whoever, they've, they've, they've you know, that, oh yeah, he's the fourth Hendrick car. He's not getting the, that good equipment. Well, nobody said that about Roush when they had five cars in the two thousands. Cause I mean, you had Mark Martin, Matt Kenseth, uh, Kurt Busch, Carl Edwards, and Greg Biffle. And any one of those guys could win any race. And that is that, I mean, that's, that's, oh, that's 2005 we're talking about. And, um, yeah, it was like a murderer's row of drivers then. And and people talk about super teams being the best cup team of all time, maybe the best driver lineup. Um, I'm pretty partial to the Earnhardt Jr., Martin, Johnson, Gordon lineup at Hendrick for a couple years there. But, um, man, those five cars at Roush, when they were printing money and, you know, they could walk out. Jack could probably walk out of his shop um, at the airport in Concord and – two people would try to sign a sponsorship deal with him they were fast man they they put that money to good use though you gotta you gotta handle that mm-hmm. oh yeah for sure and and you can't underestimate jack roush the person and jack roush the engineer jack roush is one of the smartest people i've ever met and very intellectual when it comes to i mean you know what i say this with all due respect to jack he could probably spend an hour talking to you about the ins and outs of a lug nut. I mean, he he's extremely smart and way, way over my head when it comes to engineering 
you know, what he knows about it. And I mean, take a part, take any part you want, and he could educate you on how it's made and why it's made the way it is. And, yeah, I think and, over uh, any owner now, he's number yeah. one in terms of having that engineering mind and knowing it because, you know, he he's run his own engineering business. You know, he's been a big part of that industry for a long time. Sure, um, yeah. And, you know, he, he's been in racing for forever. This wasn't somebody who jumped in with no prior experience in racing when he got when he moved to Cup full-time in 88 with Martin. They had been tearing it up in Trans Am and sports car racing for years. Um, and one of his drivers, Ben, who won him a championship was none other than Wally Dahlenbach Jr. It was the first mm-hmm. guy he added to the team uh, with Mark Martin. So, um, you know, Jack's been around for forever. Um it's crazy to think that this is the uh, 33rd year of that race team and in, in the cup series. And they've, uh, they, they've been, they've been incredibly impressive. I'll be interested to see what happens if, and when Brad Keselowski starts there next year, uh, what that'll do for the team's fortunes. Um, but you discussing owners, uh, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, we've, we've got these great owners in the sport. Uh, unfortunately we lost the great junior Johnson, a couple years ago and junior bowed out in the mid nineties, because as we were discussing, Ben, you were wisely put the costs were becoming exorbitant and junior had a choice of run 30th and, you know, spend the same amount of money or bow out and keep his legacy. And I think most people would say he probably made the right choice. Um, but you know, a lot of great owners in the sport, I'm excited to see what will come of the next generation of them. I think now with the recent news, that Jeff Gordon is, leaving the NASCAR and Fox booth to become the vice chairman at Hendrick Motorsports uh, surprised me as much as the sun rising in the east. I think a lot of people have known that Rick Hendrick has groomed Jeff Gordon to uh, help him run that race team, and I, I think he's going to do a great job. Uh, he's he's immensely qualified for that position. But in looking at the current owners that we have been, you know, a lot of them are a lot of older guys. There was a sports mm-hmm. uh, sports. Um, What's the name? It's the Sports Business Journal. Wrote a story about how some of the NASCAR's team owners are, you know, pretty old. Mm-hmm. Rick Hendrick, Jack Roush, Joe Gibbs, uh, Richard Childress. You know, the 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 prominent ones. Um, you know, Gene Haas isn't super young. Um, so you know, the, it'll be interesting to see who is in that line of succession for a lot of these teams. Um, but you know, in discussing owners and discussing race teams, it got me to thinking about. Uh, some of the old owners that have have come and gone in the Cup Series, and a couple of people who were one who raced when you started covering the sport. Uh, he owned teams. He sponsored cars. There was a period of time when almost half the the Winston Cup field had his name on their race car. And we've never, I don't think we've ever brought up, we've gone 21 episodes in a lifetime of NASCAR, and I don't think we've ever brought up J.D. Stacy until now. Right. Um, but when you want to talk about multi-car teams in some way, shape, or form, J.D. Stacy sponsored Dale Earnhardt, Tim Richmond, Terry Labonte. He sponsored whoever he could sponsor uh, for a short period of time before that money um, dried out, to put it mildly. Uh, ben, what do you remember about the great J.D. Stacy story in the Cup Series? Well, I, what I remember most about him is, is he came in to the sport like gangbusters and you know, I think a lot of times what happens, and I say I don't say this disrespectfully to sure. J.D. Stacy, I, I don't mean it that way at all, but I think what happens a lot of times is you see team owners come into the sport without a long-term game plan, and they put their name on everything, and then suddenly they aren't here. And I think what you have to do first and foremost is remember that you know, to race anything, it's a long-term commitment. It's a very, very costly venture. And like Rick Hendrick and like Richard Childress and like Roush, I mean, you have to start in Penske. You have yep. to start off with a one-car team and you have to struggle and you have to really, really set a very solid foundation to your race team and let it grow, let it grow, let it grow. Which I think Michael Jordan and Danny Hamlin are doing wisely. Yeah, I think so too. And I think what you have to do is put – you know, pay yourself uh, hypothetically a $50,000 salary for the first 15 years, so to speak, and put your money back into it, back into it, back into it, and, and let it grow and and see where you are because there's a lot of expense to a race team. And some of these guys who have a lot of money in the early, say, in the late 70s, early 80s came into this thing, 
And they suddenly realized that they just didn't have the money to keep this going because they just flooded themselves into it, sponsored everything that moved, and then suddenly they, they were not here. And we've seen that happen with, oh gosh, I could probably name eight or 10 team owners that came in and went, maybe more than that, because they just, they just, you know, they, they didn't really have a business model coming yeah, in. Yeah, they, they came in with more money and more gumption yeah. than strategy, and it showed. Exactly. Yeah, and that's why you see Rick Hendrick build from uh, from a two-car, I mean, literally two race cars that had number fives on them that Jeff Bodine uh, drove. And he told me a couple of days ago when we talked on the phone, he said, had I not won that Martinsville race April 29th, 1984 he had already told me so if you don't win this race we're going to shut the doors of hendrick motorsports yeah. now think about what i'm saying he was you know the sponsorship from that he was getting from northwestern security life talking about rick hendrick was something like i don't know i think i think he told me eight hundred thousand dollars for maybe two years or maybe maybe it was a one-year deal but i mean they had already run through a bunch of money and they were seriously thinking, if you're not going to win in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have to shut the doors. Think about what I'm saying. I mean, that was just, they were down to nothing. And uh, they only had two cars they housed in a boat shed, and they even rented the boat shed. It belonged to Harry Hyde, the crew chief. And I think he told me, Rick Hendrick told me once, that Harry Hyde was only getting like $400 a week to uh or maybe it's, I don't know, it was such a low, yeah. low, low amount of money. Now you see where they are, where there is a huge, huge multi, multi-million dollar, uh, you know, campus. race team. Yeah, it's campus. a palace. It's, it's a pal yeah, it's just amazing what they've accomplished. So, so many of these race teams, you look at Richard Childress the same way. You look at, I mean, I know Roger Penske has had a great deal of money that from so many businesses, but he's not... He, he's very well educated about how to do this. And it's yeah, not they were a one-car team for seven years in the Cup Series. Yeah. So so the point is, back to the original point, it's just that you have to be super, super careful when you walk into these deals. And there's been so many race teams, team drivers that have gone into becoming team owners only to find out that this really big super deal that they've just signed with this great corporate sponsor – they didn't get a dime, and and Daryl Waltrip will tell you uh, in a heartbeat. Oh, speed block deal. We got to get in a speed yeah. block in an upcoming yeah. episode for sure. Yeah, that didn't that didn't work out either. So I mean, there's just a lot of that kind of stuff. But I, real quick, Aaron, there's a couple of points I want to go back to that we just we kind of got off the railroad track here, talking about Brad Brad Keselowski. One of the things that he he was that he does with the media. He's very well thought out when he gives his answers. And I, one of the things I love about him, when, you, when you're in a press conference, you'll say Ben White with the Lexington NC uh, Dispatch, or, or say yourself or, or anybody, he'll say, well, Ben, this is what I think. Yeah, he calls you by name. He does call you by Few name. Few people and do that. Daryl Waltrip's the only other one I can think of who is very common about doing that too. He does, yeah. And he'll give you a very solid answer about what he's thinking, and it's, it's, it's well thought out. And, uh, you know, they're really good answers uh, that he comes back with. And another thing, myself, you know, there's a difference. There's two types of writers in this business. There are the hard news writers that are really going after that particular story uh, to try to break a particular story. And then there's people like myself who love what they do. And I'm sure they love what they do as well. My, my side of it is I'm a feature writer historian i write about the past i write about history i write about the happy-go-lucky sugary stuff yeah and i love it because that's the way i'm built you want to be positive I'm, about it that's the way i always I, was as a journalist too right i don't i don't want to get into the hard news stuff because i'm not that's not my forte sure i don't like to go that way i, I respect uh bob pockris dustin long jenna fryer an immense uh, amount of respect yeah. for those folks because they do an awesome job. That's just not my thing. And so I love to do the feature stuff. I love to get into the history stuff. That's where I do my best stuff, my best work, I believe. And, uh, you know, so you have different types of people writing different types of things. So features are my what I go to. And I, that's what I love. And I've done that for 
35 years. And and you have different, just like you have different types of drivers, you have different types of owners, yeah. different types of riders. And um, before we wrap up here, Ben, <laughs> I want to go back to Jim, to J.D. Stacy for a second. You guys can look yeah. up more about J.D. Stacy and his, his short stay in NASCAR. But he, he owned cars. There are 125 races in the Cup Series from 1977 to 1983. Again, he was not around long. Here are some of the people who drove for J.D. Stacy in that time period. Neil Bonnet, Sterling Marlin, Dale Earnhardt, Tim Richmond, Mark Martin, Morgan Shepard. He had some stars in his cars at various points. A couple of those guys, Mark Martin and Sterling Marlin, you know, hadn't risen to start by this point in the early 80s. But it's just cool to think that he had the the money and, you know, just kind of threw it around and got who he wanted. Um, won four races as a team owner, two with Tim Richmond, two with Neil Bonnet. Uh, Dale Earnhardt, I don't think wanted much to do with him in '81, so he left right. and uh, started this this deal um, in the short term with a guy named Richard Childress. And you know, histor- his history will look back fondly on that pairing. Mm, yeah, um, sure will. But uh, one driver ran two races for JD Stacy in 1982. Her name was Robin McCall, and mm. you know who Robin McCall is married to? Yep, Wild Dollar Back. That's right. That is the yeah. third. It's like this This podcast is like the six degrees of Wally Dollar Back. Like everything <laughs> we talk about eventually goes back to Wally Dollar Back. Um, yeah. We talked about multi car teams and Wally Dollar Back being in a multi car team. He was one of the guys that you said, Ben, who was, you know, teams were looking for their Jeff Gordon. Um, and in 1998, 1999, who was Wally Dollar Back's teammate? Jeff Gordon at Hendrick Motorsports. Yeah. Yes, they became teammates for a little while there, too. Um, How about that? So, yeah, this is a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Um, I, Wally Dollenbach did not sponsor this episode, but I will never turn down a chance to talk about Wally because that was one of my guys throughout the 90s when I was a little kid. Um, when Wally drove, whatever car Wally drove, that was who I was going for. Um, you know, I think we've discussed, uh, he, he came so close to winning at Watkins Glen and a one-off for Bill Davis in 95. Um had the cautions not had the cautions gone his way, he would have won. But um, while he's a super cool guy, it's so many so many people in the sport are really cool. Yeah, um, and you know what, Aaron, his dad, as you know, of course, was a famous winning uh, IndyCar driver. Wally oh, yeah. Dallenbach Senior. Who do you yeah, think Wally was named for, Ben? Oh yeah, well there you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's another one of my Martin Truex moments, right? Yeah. You know yep. what? I just stuck my big foot in my mouth. So who are you named after? <laughs> yeah, they all ask Wally. Wally, who are you named after? Yeah, you know, be like, so, yeah, I'd I, like to know. Well, you know, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's late in the day. What hey, can I say? But anyway, hey man, we've all asked questions like that. I'm sure that at some point on the radio, Martin Truex Jr. has asked a stupid question too. Um, yeah. So I doubt he would use that against you. But um, let me say this though. There might've been some folks out there that didn't know that Wally Dollenbach senior drove a race car. So, Hey, there you go. Yeah. I mean, he ran multiple, <laughs> multiple Indy 500s and I think he yeah. was a chief steward for IndyCar for a long time when it was car, car, IndyCar, IRL. It's gone by so many different names. Um, <laughs> yeah. He, Wally senior yeah. was a legend. Wally junior had some success in everything he drove. Um, super yeah. talented driver. Um, I'll, I'll be looking for a royalty check from Wally. We've mentioned him in this podcast probably more than than any other podcast ever. So we've got that uh, we've got that going for us, go. Ben. Um, yeah. We've also got episode twenty two going for us pretty soon as well. Um, I think we have crossed the finish line on episode twenty one. Uh, it has been a blast as always chatting it up with you, Ben. Yes, sir. Love doing it. Can't wait to do it again soon. With you. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Um, throw a rating our way wherever you're listening. Um, you know, I'm hoping we get at least one five-star rating, even if it is from Wally Dollenback. Um, <laughs> we'd love your feedback, whether you are a Wally Dollenback or not. We'd love to hear it. Um, and we're going to get cracking on episode 22. We're probably going to talk about Joey Logano a little bit because he's kind of a big deal, um, as well as several other people who've driven the 22 uh, throughout the history of the Cup Series, one of them being Ben Wally Dollenback. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say his name again anymore. I promise. We'll we'll, we'll stop it. But he did. Um, okay. In the meantime, for my buddy Ben White, I'm Aaron Burns. I thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We'll be back with episode 22. Did I? I think I said it when I said that. We'll be back. There we go. Get it out right. We'll be back with episode 22 very soon, faster than Wally Dollin back could go around Watkins Glen. There, I broke my promise. But in the meantime, appreciate you guys listening. We'll be back soon. So long, everybody. 
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.